The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello there and a very happy new year to you all. I hope you're all having an excellent start to 2023. I'm generally not very big on New Year's resolutions but I do love to picture things that I'd like to make happen and I have some exciting ideas and goals for the podcast that I'm really looking forward to making a reality this year. And on that note I wanted to take a moment to sincerely thank all of you for helping to make one of my 2022 podcast goals come true. I'd got it in my head that I would love for us to get to 100 Spotify reviews by the end of last year and on the 31st of December we actually hit 102 reviews. I was honestly chuffed to bits and I'm so grateful for the amazing support so a big thank you to everyone who clicked those stars on Spotify and of course for leaving a rating or review anywhere else that you listen to. It really means a lot and it makes a big difference. You are all magnificent. For our very first Strange But True story of 2023, I decided to delve into something that's been on my list of ideas for a while, the incredibly weird case of the Circleville Letters. I think I first stumbled across this story in a related article after I was looking into the real story behind the Netflix show The Watcher, and whilst these two stories aren't connected, they do both deal with bizarre incidents of anonymous, menacing letters plaguing a community. Whilst doing my research, I've gathered that this case is a lot more well known in the States than it is in the UK where I live, so I found it fascinating to learn about it all for the first time. This is one of those stories that becomes even more perplexing the more you learn and the more you think about all of the different details, and takes place in the small city of Circleville in the US state of Ohio. A quick warning before we start that there will be a very brief and vague mention of an inner appropriate incident involving a minor and another mention of someone taking their own life. So I just wanted to give a heads up before we begin. That said, do join me as we head back to March of 1977 when the sending of one sinister letter signalled the beginning of a truly puzzling chain of events. Circleville, Ohio is located around 25 miles or 40 kilometres south of the state capital of Columbus. It has a population of just under 14,000 people as of today and is renowned for its annual four-day-long pumpkin show festival, which can end up attracting over 400,000 visitors each year. In the 1970s, there were only an estimated 11,600 residents in Circleville, and by all accounts, it has more of a small town feel than that of a city. But in the spring of 1977, one local resident's peaceful day-to-day life would be disrupted by something that, on the surface, appeared to be a simple note left in her mailbox, but would become a catalyst for a much darker sequence of events. Mary Gillespie was a school bus driver who lived in Circleville with her husband Ron and their children Tracy and Eric. One day in March, she opens her mailbox as part of her daily routine, not expecting to find anything of note, when she pulls out a letter addressed to her, featuring a Columbus postmark, but no return address. Curious, she opened the letter and was greeted with a message scrawled in very distinctive handwriting on a piece of lined paper. 
it read, Mrs. Gillespie, stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. The note was unsigned and written in all capitals, with large block-like letters taking up two lines at a time. Clearly, the letter implied that the married Mary was somehow involved with or seeing someone named Massey, which turned out to be the superintendent of the Westfall School District, Gordon Massey. Perhaps a fellow employee of one of the local schools had witnessed them looking a little too close and wanted to show their disapproval by sending an anonymous note. Or maybe one of their spouses had become suspicious and went about confronting the situation in an unusual manner. The only thing is, Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey were not having an affair when the letter was sent. Confused and I'm sure very alarmed, Mary decided to keep the note to herself, but soon afterwards a second letter arrived in her mailbox. This one read, I know everything. Call the sheriff. He can't watch you forever. RT 3 Circleville, Ohio 62917, bus number 474-7301. I shall keep ringing. Again, this is no joke either. Meet him and ride in his car so I can make headlines and get this over with. Stay away from him noon as well as night. If I can get you together and make a fool of me such as the school has done, I shall come out there and... This letter does continue for a couple more lines, but on the images I've seen, the text is illegible, so either it didn't scan properly or the ink has faded over time. Once again, this is very strange, but in April of 1977, a third letter addressed to Mary arrives that feels significantly more malevolent. This letter stated, Lady, this is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. A pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs only, causes families, homes and marriages to suffer. You are such a pig and I will prove it. Why doesn't he come to your rescue or has he too much to lose? His wife, in which pigs like you take advantage of his $28,500 a year job or his kickbacks. How's your little girl? Will she grow up to be like you? Various parts of this letter were highlighted with phrases like you are a pig being underlined and your little girl being circled. That last line and the way that it was written really made my blood run cold. The level of threat feels so heightened by the writer bringing Mary's daughter up, it's horrible. So at this point, despite the letters showing no sign of slowing down, Mary still hasn't told anybody about them. However, it turns out that she was not the only person in her household who had begun to receive these letters. Further notes started appearing in the Gillespie's mailbox, this time addressed to Mary's husband, Ron. 
In the letters, the writer informs Ron about his wife's apparent affair with Gordon Massey and encourages him to tell the school board of their romantic involvement or else they will contact CBS News as well as post signs and billboards to spread the news themselves. At one point, the writer also suggests that Ron should try and catch the pair together and kill them. In one letter, they also call Ron a pig several times, and the notes feature the same blocky handwriting and similar grammar, spelling and syntax errors to the letters Mary received. Mary makes a point of assuring Ron that no such affair with Massey had taken place, and the couple decided to keep quiet about the letters in the hope that whoever was sending them would get bored and, after getting no reaction from them, would leave them alone. But unbeknownst to the pair, they were not the only Circleville residents to have been bombarded with this unwanted correspondence. As it turns out, just before Mary received her first letter, both Gordon Massey and the Westfall School Board had been sent various handwritten notes. I'll read out the first letter to Massey in full, as I think it's very important, and then I'll give you a summary of the others. Dear Sir, According to my GF, as in girlfriend, you have asked her to go out many times, and you have asked the other female bus drivers too. Due to your position and their jobs with you, you should not do this. This must stop at once for the good of the school and families. If they are not stopped, I will be forced to write to the school board and I would hate to do that. To prey on another man's girl is untouchable, especially when they are out trying to make a living. There is also talk of you dating a married woman and taking advantage of them. Do you need time and names again? Please think. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. Charming. The very next day, a letter addressed to the school board does in fact arrive and details the writer's concerns that Superintendent Massey is harassing several of the female school bus drivers and even mentions that, quote, he will not take no for an answer from a couple of them. On the 18th of March, a letter received by the school's vice principal features further details about Massey's alleged behaviour, including the lines... Talk to Gordon Massey about his affairs. I shall warn you, I know the truth. I want to protect your school. It has a good reputation. You should keep it like that. I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. This is particularly interesting, as 62917 was the driver number of none other than Mary Gillespie, so once again she had been singled out. This letter also demanded that Gordon Massey be fired from his job as superintendent. Now, for a little while after the note started, there seemed to be the feeling that they were perhaps just empty threats and nothing more. At this time, very few people knew about the existence of the letters outside of their direct recipients, although two people who were privy to their contents were Ron Gillespie's sister Karen and her husband Paul Freshour. I can only hope that I'm pronouncing his surname anywhere near correctly. I've heard it pronounced so many different ways, but this one seems to be the most consistent, so fingers crossed. So, after Mary and Ron confided in Karen and Paul about their ordeal, Mary ventured slightly further and shared her suspicions about who she thought may be writing the letters. 
This suspect was a fellow bus driver, who Mary had previously turned down following a romantic advance. A couple of sources I found stated that Mary felt this colleague had acted in a resentful manner towards her after what he perceived as a romantic snub, and this is what fueled her suspicion of him. Upon hearing this, Paul Freshour penned his own note to the suspected letter writer, informing him of their beliefs of his guilt, and to demand that he stop taunting the couple. Although the nefarious correspondence did stop for a while after this confrontation, and I wish I could tell you that everything just fizzled out, the polar opposite is true. In fact, this story is about to get a whole lot darker. After this brief period of peace when no further letters arrived, the sender appeared to switch tactics. Signs, as in actual physical placards, started appearing along Mary's bus route, featuring various derogatory and accusatory statements about her. Understandably, this infuriated Ron, and he would reportedly drive around town early in the morning to try and find and remove any of these signs before his children or his wife could see them. I can't imagine how these mind games must have felt to the family, and although it seems that Mary and Ron did everything to shield their children from things like the signs, it must have been a really awful time for everyone involved. And sadly, things were only going to get drastically worse for the Gillespies. By August of 1977, Mary knew she needed to get away for a while. It was the school holidays and she had some time off, so she decided to drive down to Florida along with her sister-in-law, leaving the children and Ron at home. On that very same day, the 19th of August, it's believed that Ron received a phone call shortly after arriving home from work. Now, this part is quite difficult to corroborate and many different sources present slightly different accounts of how this phone call went. But I think one thing it's clear to say is that the person on the other end of the phone was the letter writer. I think it's also safe to assume that after speaking to them, Ron had a pretty good idea of who the mysterious antagonist was. Because later that evening, around 10pm, Ron got into his pickup truck and, according to his daughter Tracy, headed out to confront the person who had been harassing his family. But tragically, Ron would never complete his journey. At approximately 10.30pm, his truck crashed into a tree, and this is very grim, but as he had not been wearing his seatbelt, he had been partially thrown from the vehicle through the windscreen and sustained massive internal injuries. Ron died instantly, and although on the surface the incident appears to be a tragic accident, before long, several incredibly strange details surrounding his death emerged. Firstly, underneath Ron's body, police found a revolver that had been fired shortly before he crashed. But the bullet was never recovered, and there was absolutely no obvious indication as to why he might have fired the gun. Very, very odd. Secondly, Ron was found to have had a blood alcohol level of almost twice the legal limit, and as a result, his death was ruled a drink-driving accident in the official police report. However, it was widely known that Ron was not a big drinker, and according to his daughter Tracy, he had been sober when he headed out of the house that night, and his family and friends were sure he would never drive drunk. 
Thirdly, there were no adverse weather conditions that night, and there didn't appear to be a solid explanation for why Ron would have veered off the road at the point he did. And if all of that wasn't weird enough, rumours soon started swirling in the community that perhaps the truth about the circumstances of Ron's death was somehow being concealed or suppressed. Ron's family and friends felt the investigation was lacking, to put it mildly, and that too many of the strange details about the night he passed away weren't properly investigated or considered by police. His brother-in-law, Paul Freshour, was particularly demanding of the authorities to take a closer look at Ron's case, and although Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe was allegedly suspicious that foul play had been involved at first, he eventually concluded that there wasn't enough evidence to pinpoint the involvement of another person, and so the drunk driving accident conclusion stuck. But Ron's loved ones weren't the only people who found the police investigation to be somewhat shoddy. Shortly after Ron's death, the anonymous letter writer made their return, sending handwritten notes to various Circleville residents, businesses and government offices, claiming that Sheriff Radcliffe was indeed involved in a cover-up of the crime. It's been suggested that this could have been due to the sheriff's career ambitions, and not wanting to have the reputation of coming from an area where a mysterious figure was running around not only posting menacing letters, but possibly killing one of the recipients. I'm not suggesting that this is true myself, but it's an opinion that's been offered up as to why so many of the questions around Ron's death went unanswered. Now here is where the plot thickens, and when I first learned about this aspect of the story, it felt like a very odd shift happened in my perception of events. After her husband Ron passed away, Mary Gillespie started seeing someone new, and of all the people in Circleville, who was her new love interest? None other than Gordon Massey, the man she had been accused of having an affair with, and the subject of so much of the immense vitriol in the letters. When it comes to this twist, different sources tend to report this element with slight variations. A CBS News piece notes that the pair started seeing each other only after Ron's death, and that no affair took place, but others suggest that there had been an affair, but it only started after the letters began arriving. Personally, I think the first suggestion is more likely, and I also feel the source is more reliable, so that's what I'll go with. Regardless, it was still a very bold move from the pair to begin a relationship, and it seems that the letter writer was far from happy about this development in Mary and Gordon's personal lives. Over the next few years, Mary continued to find disturbing letters, cards and postcards in her mailbox, including a particularly chilling one in December of 1982. On the back of a Christmas card in the letter writer's distinctive hand were the words, Just tell your daughter we are going to post some signs about her next year at the bus stops. Since you've caused this by what you've done to Mrs Massey, and all knows it. How will you face her? But your type have no consciences, or you wouldn't have hurt Mrs Massey behind her back. The fact it was on a Christmas card and contains a threat against Tracy feels extra creepy to me, but despite spending years receiving these ominous notes, absolutely nothing could have prepared Mary for what would take place on the 7th of February 1983. 
Around 3.30pm on the 7th, Mary was driving her empty bus along her usual route to pick up the school children when she spotted a large and incredibly offensive sign. This is awful, but it's believed that the sign featured an obscene allegation about Gordon Massey concerning Mary's then 13-year-old daughter, and I'm sure you can connect the dots on that one. It's truly grim. The sign was mounted on a fence, and upon seeing it, Mary was blinded with rage. She stopped the bus, marched over to the sign, and attempted to pull it from the fence. When she did so, she realised that the placard was part of some kind of larger rig, which also included twine and a mysterious box. Mary was confused and she decided to take both the sign and the box back home with her to try and understand what it contained. And what she found was horrifying. Inside the box was a loaded gun ready to go off. It was clear that the setup was a trap and that the intention had been for the gun to fire directly at the person who pulled down the sign. Thankfully, the rig had not been set up properly and no bullet was discharged after Mary had removed the placard. Nonetheless, it was obvious that she had been the intended victim and she swiftly took the box and the gun to the sheriff's office. What investigators would find upon examining the firearm is truly shocking. Experts at the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation were able to decipher the partially removed serial number on the gun and traced it back to a local man who, upon being questioned by police, confirmed that he had recently sold the gun. And who had bought it? The man who had taken such a huge interest in the strange letters from the moment he was told about them. Mary's brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. So if you're anything like me, you may have just clasped your hands together and thought, yes, it all makes sense now. The mystery is solved, the perpetrator has been found, and his motives would make sense. If he'd suspected that Mary and Gordon Massey were having an affair, be it true or not, it adds up that he could take action in the form of sending the letters by way of defending his brother-in-law, Ron. But in yet another bizarre turn of events, the idea that Paul was the letter writer is still hugely debated to this day. Allow me to explain. When police first visited Paul, he was very willing to admit that the gun was in fact his, but that it had been stolen a few weeks earlier and he had no idea who had taken it. He was completely open to them searching his car and house, and although he categorically denied that he was the letter writer, he readily agreed to undergo a handwriting test. The way this test was reportedly performed is very odd. Apparently, at one point, an investigator asked him to just flat out copy one of the letters and its strange block-like handwriting as best he could, which seems like a frankly ludicrous way to conduct a test like this. And the results of the test were later deemed inconclusive. Paul was also given a polygraph test, which we know are notoriously unreliable, and he did actually fail this test. As a result, he was arrested and charged with the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. Although, interestingly, 
he was never charged with sending any of the threatening letters, despite the fact that his wife Karen had told police she was sure he was the sender. The pair were going through a less than amicable divorce when investigators spoke to Karen following Mary's attempted murder, and informed them that after finding similar letters hidden in their house, she believed Paul was responsible for them. Hmm. Paul's trial was very unusual. Although at one point before the trial began, he had used the plea of insanity and had been evaluated at a mental health centre, this plea was dropped and the case did go to trial as originally planned. From everything I've read, it seems that the evidence presented in court was less than watertight and appeared to be overwhelmingly circumstantial. For example, Paul had taken the day off work the day the booby trap was set, but multiple defence witnesses saw him at home that day as he was having some work done on his house. And although the gun in the trap did belong to him and the box could have been something readily found at his place of work, his fingerprints were found on neither the gun nor the box, and he was not seen near the site of the trap that day. Additionally, although Paul was not on trial for being the writer and sender of the Circleville letters, the trial seemed to focus on them heavily. The judge allowed 39 of the letters to be used in evidence, and although it was shown that the writing on the booby trap's box was similar to that found in the letters, the link of this back to Paul still hinged on those very dodgy tactics used to gain his handwriting sample, the one that had already been found to not really prove anything. Ultimately, the jurors were sent to deliberate, armed with all of this evidence, and they ended up finding Paul guilty of attempted murder. He was handed the maximum sentence, which was 7 to 25 years in prison, to the utter bemusement of many of his friends and family, who maintained that Paul was not capable of doing something like this. Are you ready for one final twist in this tale? Because, my friends, it is a wild one. With Paul Freshour in prison, the residents of Circleville expected that the saga of the anonymous letters would be at an end. But that could not be further from the truth of what happened. During the years Paul was incarcerated, hundreds of new letters were sent, and they did not come from the prison. Each letter still featured a Columbus postmark. The prison's warden even explicitly said that it would have been impossible for Paul to be writing and sending them. He was often kept in isolation with no access to pens or paper, and even during those periods, the letters did not stop. In fact, Paul himself even received letters whilst he was locked up. One of them read, Fresh Hour. Now, when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago when we set them up. They stay set up. You don't listen at all. And who did Paul believe was the person who had set him up? His ex-wife, Karen, in order to retain all of their assets to herself after their divorce was finalised. This possibility has been discussed at length in different articles, and although I'm certainly not saying it's true, it's interesting that Paul held this opinion. He was eventually released from prison in 1994, and maintained his innocence until his death in 2012. He even willingly participated in an Unsolved Mysteries episode soon after his release, 
stating in an interview clip that he wished the letter-writing section of the case would be reopened and that the perpetrator would be brought to justice. Over the years, the police have been criticised for failing to follow up on a number of possible leads, including a sighting of a man who did not match Paul's description standing beside an El Camino car at the site of the booby trap just 20 minutes before Mary came across it. And whilst everything in this case is strange, so too is the timing of the letters finally ceasing to be sent out. This happened only when Paul was released from prison in 1994. I'm actually struggling to think of another time where I've been this conflicted about what I think happened. A significant part of me truly believes that Paul had nothing to do with the letters or Mary's attempted murder. A smaller part of me thinks that perhaps he knew more than he let on, or was involved alongside someone else. And an even smaller part accepts that he could have been responsible for at least the booby trap. But I feel that the evidence was just not strong enough, and I really doubt that in 2023 he would be found guilty of the crime with that same level of evidence. Going by the continued sending of the letters after Paul was imprisoned alone, I believe that the mastermind of the whole scheme was never caught. There have been all sorts of allegations made over the years, including that perhaps Paul and Karen's son Mark could have been involved. Sadly, Mark took his own life in 2002, and some people have jumped on this fact to try and tie him into the case, but I haven't seen any concrete evidence for this myself. What I do believe is that one person was responsible for the physical writing of all the letters, especially when you consider that there were things like consistent grammar errors spread throughout them all. I also think that the investigation around Ron Gillespie's death was insufficient, and I think there's every possibility that some foul play was involved. But like with most things in this story, so many puzzle pieces are missing that it's hard to be specific when trying to come up with a theory on this. I think that one of the reasons this tale is still so widely discussed to this day is because it is a true mystery. It seems likely to me that the letter writer would have been someone who was close to Mary or Gordon Massey in some way, perhaps a close colleague or a friend or family member of one of them. There was so much emotion in the letters and it felt very personal, not to mention the level of detail they seemed to know about their lives, and I doubt it was just a random local resident who happened to know their faces in passing. I do wonder whether there is any properly preserved physical evidence left in storage from the case and whether any new DNA techniques could help to further shed some light on it. I know it's a very long shot but as we know stranger things have happened in recent years thanks to things like familial DNA testing and data sharing. Ultimately I feel awful that Ron Gillespie met such a terrible end in the course of this story. It must have been truly traumatising for those close to him. I have no doubt that the Circleville Letters case will continue to intrigue people for many years to come. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. I know it featured a lot of names and even more twists and turns, but I hope you found it as baffling and fascinating as I did. I must say that this episode was a tricky one to research as there are lots of conflicting details depending on the source. I feel that because this tale has become so infamous in the States, there's been some instances of artistic license being taken to fill in the gaps in certain articles, but I've done my very best to make sure I've stuck to the facts. 
I am so intrigued to know your thoughts on this story. So as always, please do get in touch and let me know what you make of this incredibly strange true crime case. Before I do my usual roundup though, I have something rather exciting to introduce to you and it's brand new for the new year. So over on our Facebook discussion group, one of our wonderful members, Anya, I hope I've said your name correctly, suggested something that really got me thinking. And as a result, I've actually decided to introduce a new little outro feature on the podcast for 2023. Anya mentioned perhaps doing an episode about my favourite weird media, for example, books, films, TV shows, and I thought it could be fun to spread it out and recommend one favourite piece of weird media at the end of each episode. So a huge thank you for this idea, and without further ado, here is my very first weird media shout out. In the year 2000, there was a revival of the 1960s series Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, made by the BBC, and it starred Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer, along with some other amazing names like Amelia Fox and Tom Baker, and it's one of my very favourite TV shows of all time. I was obsessed with it when it came out, and even though there are only two series, I've watched every episode dozens and dozens of times. If you don't know the premise, Randall and Hopkirk are private detectives, and Hopkirk is actually killed slash murdered and becomes a ghost who only Randall can see. The Vic and Bob version is very funny, and I adore it more than words can say. It's quite of its time in terms of things like the special effects, but I find it just as enjoyable now as I did back in 2000, 2001. It's perfect to me. I would love to know if any of you remember it too, and if you do decide to check it out, I would be so excited to hear what you think of it. I'll have a new weird media recommendation next week, but for now. The sources that helped me put together my research for this episode were that brilliant CBS News feature from August of 2022, which featured interview clips from all kinds of people and was fascinating. There was source material, including images of the letters and also news clippings, which I found on the websites of two fantastic podcasts, Crime Junkie and Invisible Ships. So a huge shout out to both of those. There was a great article on mentalfloss.com from December of 2020 and another from thoughtcatalogue.com from June 2021. There was also a helpful piece on the Unsolved Mysteries wiki and a handy fact sheet about the Circleville Pumpkin Show that I found on pumpkinshow.com. There are lots of ways that you can get in touch. You can find us on Facebook, both through the main podcast page and also the private discussion group too. Just search Things Are About To Get Weird on there and you can request to join the private discussion group. I will be sure to let you in. On Instagram, our handle is at Things Get Weird Podcast and on Twitter, it's at About To Get Weird. You can always pop me an email too. The address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. 